Previously on Target USA. Aviation is still one of the number one targets of interest on the part of terrorist groups and, and individuals. After liquid and laptop bans on planes, it's clear a new twist on a very dangerous threat has emerged. Terrorists are competing for supremacy in aviation terror attacks. There's a spectacular nature to, to attacking aviation. Uh, it says something about you as a, as a terrorist group if you're able to get through the, all the uh, um, systems designed to prevent damage. Former TSA Administrator Peter Neffinger put into context the threat and the future when it comes to aviation. And on this program, part two of our conversation. Plus, in the years after the terror plot to install explosives in printer cartridges and use air cargo planes to fly them to the U.S., there's been a great concern within that industry. Air cargo is still a threat because terrorists like high visibility targets and it's all part of the aviation scheme that terrorists like to exploit. That's Brandon Freed, executive director of the Air Forwarders Association, which represents a number of cargo airlines and indirect air carriers. I think we always have to be vigilant. We can never rest. We'll never, you know, have this totally buttoned up. Find out why right now on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. In 2015, a blistering Inspector General's report came out regarding the Transportation Security Administration. An internal investigation revealed failures at dozens of the nation's busiest airports where undercover investigators smuggled mock explosives or banned weapons through checkpoints 95% of the time. On this program, part two of our conversation with former TSA Administrator Peter Neffinger, we discuss that report, what he did to fix it, and where we are now. And so we had to figure out whether that was, first of all, how, how bad of a problem was that, and, uh, and how, how would we go about correcting that problem. How did you do it? it? It's tempting to just go tackle the person who failed. You know, so, so let's, uh, you know, the report is still classified, so I won't, I won't talk specific numbers. They were all out in the open press, but... But, but, but at, a, at a small handful of airports, the inspector general, red team testers, had, uh, had brought, you know, um, inert dummy um, explosives and, and or um, uh, disabled weapons through uh, a number of checkpoints. And they did so at an alarmingly high rate, according to the leaked report. So the first question is, is you just go tackle the person that did something that, that missed it and say, hey, you... Uh, transportation security officer, you failed to do your job. My general approach has been, spent, having spent 34 years in the, in the U.S. Coast Guard, whenever you have a failure of that sort, and it's across a number of different locations, it tends to be something more systemic. Uh, I, you know, I tend to look at it and say, people generally don't fail. People don't go to work in the morning and say, I want to find a way not to do my job. 
usually there's something else going on in the system that is that is keeping them from succeeding. So we said let's take let's take a step back and look at everything going on in the agency and determine whether there are things that are leading towards failure on on the front end. And long story short, what we found is that uh, the there was a probably a disproportionate focus on efficiency uh, on the part of management uh, over time. And by that, I mean, if you recall, during the mid-2000s, there was a lot of pressure on TSA to speed up the lines because they were getting long and frustrating. Uh, this was before PreCheck came along. <clears throat> and in the process, uh, inadvertently, there was a lot of pressure put on those TSOs, the transportation security officers, the uniform people, to to move people more effective, efficiently through the line. Well, if you start incentivizing people to move them through the line faster, it, it takes away the incentive to actually find things. Right. So I think what we found is that that, number, that was probably the number one issue was, was pressure on the front line to get people moving through faster. So in other words, you had to slow down a little bit in order to make things work faster. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and I knew in doing that we were going to create some initial problems with, with lines. Because the other thing you had to do is, is sort of recalibrate thinking in the organization. And by that I mean it's, it's not about – I mean efficiency is important. Don't get me wrong. And we, and we, we learned that uh, lesson over the past year and we worked very hard to get it. But it turns out that the reason the lines were long was not because the people – weren't doing their job effectively. It's that you had a combination of a reduction in workforce size of about close to 6,000 officers over the course of five years. So from 2011 to 2015, uh, we reduced in size by 5,800 people uh, to the point where at peak periods at the top airports, and the top airports, I mean the top 30 airports, and they account for about 75 to 80% of the daily traffic, uh, daily passenger volume, we could only staff to about 60% of the peak. So, you know, you go to the airport and you'd say, hey, how come there's no so many checkpoint lanes that aren't open? And it's because there just weren't people there to man the, the checkpoint mm -hmm. lanes. And uh, so first thing was to figure out what's the right number of people you need and then to retrain the entire workforce. We also found out that there were, there were you know, lots of inconsistency from airport to airport in how people did their job. And that directly tied to the fact that we didn't have a centralized, consistent training program in TSA. Uh, most of the training is done, had been done on the job at, at airport locations. Not that the trainers weren't, weren't doing their best, but you can imagine that without a centralized uh, training effort, you're going to have inconsistency from place to place. Mm -hmm. So the second thing we did was we did a rolling stand down across the agency over a two-month period, August and September. Everybody in the agency, management on down, was retrained on the failures. Uh, we talked about, we called it Mission Essentials Back to Basics. Mm -hmm. And uh, in yeah. fact, we created this Mission Essentials program over the, over the course of time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, speaking of essentials and speaking of efficiency and safety and, you know, process in the TSA security system, there were scenarios that kept popping up where we would hear from airports saying they wanted to do their own security. And that, I think, sent a message to many people in the American public that TSA wasn't necessary in order for an airport to do security. But correct us and or put us on the right page when this, when this topic comes up, because 
it's my understanding that even if they do decide they want to do their own security, they still need TSA involved. Yeah, so that's there's a program. Congress, when they created TSA, uh, carved out a provision for the private sector to still have a role in in performing security, but it works in a very specific way. TSA is always and forever in charge of the security standards across the country, and and I think that's appropriate. You know, you think about it. What is the thing that we most want government to do is to protect us. So when you have something as critical to the economic um, health and well-being of this nation as our transportation system, it makes sense that the federal government's going to pay attention to it and ensure that there's a consistent approach to it. But what, what the private sector role is, is this. An airport, and it has to be an airport that does this, can come to the TSA, <clears throat> excuse me, can come to the TSA and say, I'd like to see if we can get a private contractor in here to perform the duties of the TSA. But it is a contract back to the federal government. So TSA manages the contract. Uh, these are contractors that work for TSA. There's always a, there's a TSA um, a management staff that manages that contract on site. A good example, uh, and the largest airport that has such, is uh, San Francisco International Airport. They have a private contractor uh, who provides, um, and has been since 9-11, provides the screening services. Those individuals are trained along with TSA, so we train them to the same standards. Uh, to all intents and purposes, they're just like a TSA officer, and they work for the TSA. So there's no private outside security that's going to be securing an airport. TSA is always going to be involved. That's correct, and that's the way Congress established the, the procedures. So they, Congress wanted TSA to always have oversight. So, so the, 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 the misunderstanding is that this is not a contract workforce that works for the airport. It's a contract workforce that works for the TSA. So from my perspective as the administrator, it was no different to me looking at Covenant Security Officer at San Francisco International Airport than it was looking at a, a federal employee mm-hmm. at Oakland. Mm-hmm. understand. So as we take a look back at your tenure at TSA, and in a moment or two, take a look forward. There's one critical element that developed some years ago before you went to TSA, but I think is still a crucial element now, and that is what we call the BDO, the Behavior Detection Officer. And that is a very, in many people's minds, a very mysterious position, a situation. But um, I think this position is one um, where the individual that performs this task is supposed to essentially look at people and try to determine uh, to the best of their ability what they, or, or to, to, to try to figure out to the best of their ability what that person may be up to or may be thinking. Give us a sense of what the behavior detection officer position is all about. I'll do that. And it's, um, you know, anytime you, you title something, it becomes, a, it becomes a, an object of interest. And let, so, so we'll, we'll put the title aside for a second. Let's just talk about what is it that you're looking for in people coming through a checkpoint. Uh, so we see uh, on average of about 2 million people a day moving through checkpoints. And we turned to earlier in the career, this is long before I got there, but uh, earlier in the history of TSA, uh, they turned to law enforcement agencies, uh, the Israelis, uh, and others to say, what are some of the techniques you use to determine whether or not somebody has ill intent uh, coming through? In addition to just looking at, you know, x-raying their bags and checking them as they walk through metal detectors or, 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 or other detectors. 
And, and it turns out that many law enforcement agencies around the world, New York Police Department, L.A. Police Department, the Israelis, others, use some form of, of behavioral monitoring. And by that, I mean just looking to see, does somebody look like they're acting funny? And it turns out that, that people do give off clues if they're, um, if they're trying to get away with something. It's not a, it's not a foolproof system. It's not 100%. But what you're really looking for are just indicators that might have you ask a few more questions of somebody. So if I, you know, if I see Peter Neffinger walking through a checkpoint and, and I'm looking around a lot and I look really nervous and I'm sweating, I might just be a really a, a, a bad flyer. I might be afraid. <laughs> but then again, I might be trying to get away with something. So what, a, what we train our folks to do, and we actually train behavioral detection into everybody who works in the, in the, uh-huh. in the checkpoint. And what they do is they just say, hey maybe we ought to just ask this guy a few more questions. So, so they might refer me to a local law enforcement agent who will just say, hey, how's it going today? You look a little nervous today. What's going on? Yeah. And, and it's really as simple as that. The program... But, you know, before you go into that, in this age of social media and in this age of things blowing up into something that it isn't, there is a risk of that turning into being detained, you know? Well, we... It, we don't detain, and, and that's. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean. But, I don't mean taking right. into custody. I mean delaying, and that's true. That can be misinterpreted. How do you handle that? Well, normally what we do is you you. Um, it, it's actually a pretty quick interaction. Okay. A, a few quick questions as you're moving through. A couple ever, minutes. Not even. Not even that. Know, not even that. It might be the the person who's checking your ah. the uh, your document as you're coming through, and they'll say, "Hey, how you doing?" And they might just say. Wait till you get through the checkpoint, and then they'll pull you aside and um, and ask a question or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that in a number of instances, we'll find people with active warrants, active uh, you know arrest warrants, um, who are attempting to smuggle things through the checkpoint that they shouldn't, or or the like. Uh, sometimes you'll find that that you have people who are who've been asked to do something by somebody else, uh, and they'll spill the beans once they uh once once you ask them a question or two mm-hmm. so it is it's been surprisingly effective at um at ferreting out people who have some ill intent mostly it's criminal in nature uh, but it, it 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 has validated some of the purposes now there's a lot there's been some controversy around the bdo program and it's mostly because of i think tsa had not done a good job in the past of really explaining what its purpose was it's not a, like i said it's not a program that's 100 percent foolproof it's simply a series, you know, additional indicators that might have um, some reason to, to 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 ask a few more questions of somebody moving through. What was the controversy? Uh, I'm, that's escaping me at the moment. Well, there was some question as to whether there was profiling going on, and uh, and I've okay. I repeatedly well, with one I took a hard look at that when I got there. Uh, TSA spends a lot of time talking about why we don't profile and, to our own people, so that part of the training is. And it's primarily this: profiling will lead you astray. Uh, if you're spending time looking at what you think are, you know, external indicators of something, you are probably not going to pay attention to the person who's really the problem. Yeah. So, so profiling is really is 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 really uh, self defeating, which is why which is which is a, 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 a putting aside the the whole human rights and um, uh, aspect of it. Mm-hmm. It um, it just doesn't work, mm-hmm. and and it's been proven wrong repeatedly. That's Peter Neffinger, former administrator for the Transportation Security Administration. We'll finish up with some notes on him and what's going on now in just a few moments. But first, the other part of the equation, air cargo. 
Securing air cargo from terrorists is another problem aviation security is facing. When two air cargo jets were discovered in 2010 to have explosives loaded on them and headed to the U.S., it revealed a vulnerability that perhaps had been overlooked in the hectic scramble to secure passenger airplanes. We spoke with Brandon Freed, executive director of the Air Forwarders Association, about that problem and where it stands today. Can you catch us up on what some of the threats and the risk and the vulnerabilities have been since then? It's been seven years. Well, I think that we've made a, a tremendous amount of, of progress since that day in, in 2010, um, where, you know, terrorists just uh, you know, walked in and relatively unchallenged were able to get uh, printer cartridges inside of uh, printers. Uh, the, the cartridges contain explosives, and they were put on um, uh, air freighters, both on UPS and FedEx, and, and uh, were probably going to find their way to the United States, and that was thwarted, thankfully, through, in, through uh, intelligence information sharing by the governments, not through detection at the time. Um, so I think that uh, uh, air cargo is still a, uh, a, a, a threat. Obviously, because uh, you know terrorists like high visibility targets, and it's all part of the aviation uh, uh, scheme that air that uh, terrorists like to uh, exploit. On the air cargo side, however, a lot of uh, preventative uh, measures have come into place. Not the least of which is screening is now universal throughout the world, especially on on uh, flights coming into the United States or departing any uh, U.S. airport. Uh, that's thanks to the 9/11 Recommendations Act that was uh, uh, enacted a few years ago, where um, cargo departing or arriving at a U.S. airport has to be screened on what they call the 100% peace level. That's by the peace. So uh, it's done in a, in a number of ways, but but the the, uh, the result is that cargo is is fully screened coming into the U.S. What grew out of Yemen, though, was a, a realization that it maybe wasn't enough just to, to physically screen the box. What else were you looking to learn? What did you, what else did you need to know? Who the shipping parties were? Who was doing the shipping? Who was doing the receiving? What was being sent? Where was it being sent to? Now, this information would be sent to U.S. Customs and Border Protection at the same time that the cargo was actually being physically screened. That way, if there was a trend or, let's say, bad actors were using the system, it would hopefully be uh, detected so that additional steps would be taken. So, so. Um, we have been anxiously awaiting a notice of proposed rulemaking here in the United States for the Air Cargo Advanced Screening Initiative, where this would, in, in fact, become law of the land. Now, what's been happening up to now is there's been a pilot program where airlines and freight forwarders are, are uh, voluntarily submitting their data to uh, Customs and Border Protection, and that data is being analyzed but we're not quite in, in the regulatory stage yet. We're anxiously awaiting. So um, why is it taking so long? Uh, I, I think that um, a, a number of reasons, not the least of which is, is presidential transitions, uh, but also, you know, a transition of, of leadership at TSA and, you know, maybe at CBP. 
Um, and and I think that these uh, you know new administrations come in and take some time for for them to to uh, uh, get their footing and, and uh, understand exactly the nature of the program and, and its and its specifics. Um, I would also say that there are some uh, you know some operational procedures that that have to be worked through. Uh, there are nuances. There are various details that have to be uh, uh, worked through, such as an example: what happens if you have a positive hit? Who does what? What 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 the uh, what the process and the procedures are, depending on what country that the uh, the origin uh, of the goods uh, is. But but you know the reality is, I think it, it's also about political will, and it's a, it's about a new administration coming in, and we don't have. Uh, political leadership right now in place at the TSA. We just got it at Customs and Border Protection. And I think that this needs a push from the White House. Uh, and okay. uh, once we get that, things will be uh, on track. But there, but in the meantime, you know, terrorists don't wait for political administrations to get their ducks in a row and to essentially um, get their team up and running. They like to attack when there are voids. There are, exactly. there are vacuums, and this sounds to me, what you're talking about sounds like there is a very clear void here. In well, the, this is an informational void. It, it's not a, a, a what I would call the physical void. Fortunately, all the cargo is being screened. In other words, we know what's inside the box now. Okay. That we've come a long way in security and cargo security over uh, the, the, the past decade. And, you know, at the beginning when September 11th happened, at that point in time, we weren't doing a lot of physical screening. Now everything is screened. So this is kind of, this is just an, an added tool. Remember, this is a mis, uh, what we call a risk-based multi-layered approach. It's not, we, we don't want anyone depending on just one tool uh, in, in, uh, uh, in assuring air cargo security. And we think that information is, is a good tool as well because it enables us to spot trends that may or may not be in existence. But I rest assured, everything is being physically screened. We know what's in those boxes. So that said, um, you know, one of the main complaints that I get from people who are uh, intelligence and security officials that are tasked with preventing terror attacks and stopping terror terrorists is that we're constantly fighting yesterday's battle today. So the question that I would ask you, um, do you feel that considering that uh, the terrorists are not going to necessarily try to slip printer cartridge bombs on DHL and FedEx flights again, it's going to be something much more exotic? Are you comfortable that uh, everything is in place to prevent the next exotic uh, explosive from making it into the system? I think we always have to be vigilant. We can never rest. We'll never, you know, have this totally buttoned up. This is the type of, of challenge that is going to require constant innovation, constant creativity, because as you said, the bad guys are creative as well. Uh, we are working right now on some pretty forward-thinking initiatives. As an example, the use of privatized canines. Hmm. Uh, in the screening process, something you know, up to now, it's only TSA that was able to use dogs, and most of those are used at the passenger terminal to a small extent over at the the freight terminal. And we at, at the Air Forwarders Association have proposed that you know we get private companies to supply dogs to the industry, and if TSA wants them. By the way, uh, 
you know, validated and audited to TSA standards by the TSA. Um, and we've been talking to them for quite some time. We've, we've testified uh, up on the Hill about it. Actually, we haven't, but, but the industry has testified on the Hill about it. And we're seeing some, some progress. We hope to see quicker progress as we go because we think that it's just one more tool. You know, we rely on technology to get the uh, get the screening done. This will allow something that's a little less technical but highly effective into the uh, into the tool chest as well. And we need to constantly be coming up with these new ideas. What keeps you up at night these days? Uh, I, I would say that you know the, the political process is something that is of, of great concern. And, you know, there are a lot of very hardworking people in Washington, and they're hardworking people, by the way, at the White House as well. The, you know, we all have the best intentions in mind, but we can't get mired in the red tape. We need to move things along. You know, you talk about regulatory exemptions, uh, you know, when, when the new administration comes in. But if it has to do with safety and security, they have to be on the fast track all the time, regardless of who is sitting in the Oval Office. And uh, just for our listeners' sake, um, cross-reference how, you know, regulatory stuff, which tends to make some people's eyes cross, yeah, uh, and some, some people just purposely roll their eyes um, right. w- when you start talking about those things. But there is a there there. That stuff is connected, and it is important. So if you would, just uh, connect uh, why that's important to the safety and security. Well, it's, it's, you know, obviously, you know, regulations, you have, there are a lot of great ideas, but there are also some ideas that might not be so great. And that's why, you know, we have a, a rulemaking process here in the United States, and that works very effectively where all parties can weigh in on, you know, their ideas, maybe their objections, their, their criticisms of the idea, or, 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 or just, you know, improvements on the idea itself. That's essential to the process before a, a rule comes in, into, into being. Um, but it is a process, and it's initiated most of the time, obviously, uh, uh, through Congress, but also through the, the administration. And it's essential to the process. It has to be done. But it is also a way to increase red tape and uh, it, it's subject to a lot of delays, which oftentimes are unnecessary or, in many cases, uh, unwise. And that they just, uh, when it comes to safety and security, we have to cut them down as much as possible. That's Brandon Freed, Executive Director of the Air Forwarders Association. The problem of terrorism in the U.S. aviation system, including the air cargo system, continues. And we will continue to follow it. One final note from former TSA Administrator Peter Neffinger. He's out of government now, relaxing, teaching, but still thinking about transportation security and hasn't ruled out serving again. Coming up on our next episode, rising tensions between North Korea and the U.S. over North Korea's nuclear program and its missile program. And while it might seem logical to think that North Korea's weapons programs are designed to preserve the country, the reality is something else. The Kim family regime is simply concerned about its own survival. If you look at other cases around the world, the survival of the state is generally seen as more important than the survival of the regime. But in North Korea, the Kim family regime places its own survival above everything else. And in that country, millions of people are suffering, 
And if the cycle of rhetoric and the collision course between the West and North Korea continues, many more in North Korea and beyond will suffer as well. That's coming up on our next program. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed. Unscripted. Unscripted. Yeah, let's go with that. A marriage made in heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests. David Copperfield, Neil LaBute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain Wilson, the first guest. You were no, the very this, first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. Stephen Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake.